It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brad Houston. Episode 273, The Woman at the Well. In this episode, Janelle's going to cover the historical significance, the the spiritual significance, uh, even the geographic significance of one of the longest conversations that Jesus has with anyone in the entire New Testament. All right, and without further ado, Janelle Houston. This is Janelle Heaston, and it's been quite a while since I've had the pleasure to be a guest on my husband's podcast, Message to Kings. Today, I have the privilege of sharing one of my favorite stories from the Bible, and I pray you're just as blessed as I have been by it. I'm going to approach this today first by reading straight from the scripture as it reads in the book of John, chapter 4, then dive into some of the main points for discussion. Chapter 4, John Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or, Why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman ran back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Okay, so there's a lot here. I want to review some geographical, historical, and cultural context so we can better understand the significance of this dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. First, let's talk about the geographical observations related to this story. First off, where is biblical Samaria in relationship to Judea and Galilee? For those who aren't familiar with this region, then picture this. You have the Mediterranean Sea to the west, then you have the region of biblical Galilee directly north, then you have the region of Samaria directly underneath the region of Galilee. Keep in mind, Samaria is both the name of a region and the name of a city in the region of Samaria. Samaria's borders extend for about 40 miles, or 65 kilometers, from north to south, and 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, from east to west. The eastern border of Samaria was the Jordan River, which we recall from the Old Testament history, it played a significant boundary marker when the Israelites first crossed over into the Promised Land, back when Brett covered the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Then, under the region of Samaria, you have the region of Judea, where Jerusalem is located. Due to the proximity of this region of Samaria, there was plenty of rainfall and fertile soil, which helped agriculture thrive in the region. Crops included grapes, olives, barley, and wheat. The historian Josephus even wrote about this area. He stated the abundance of trees in the area being full of fruit, both that which grow wild and that which is the effect of cultivation. They are not naturally watered by many rivers, but derive their chief moisture from rainwater, of which they have no want. And for those rivers which they have, all their waters are exceedingly sweet by reason also of the excellent grass they have. Their cattle yield more milk than do those in other places. Okay, I really love Josephus' description of this area. I would have loved a taste of that milk. 
I guess this added depth to the description of the promised land that truly it was a land of milk and honey. Now that we have a better understanding of the different regions, let's talk about the specific setting of this story. It is in the town of Sychar, at the well of Jacob. In the region of Samaria, Samaria the city was actually the capital of the northern kingdom. Around Samaria the city is the location in our story today, Sychar. Many historians have discussed this question. Is Sychar the same as the biblical town of Shechem? Most agree that yes, this is the same city. Shechem is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Sychar was only mentioned once in the New Testament. So when you hear Jacob's well, Sychar, and Shechem, you can connect all of those basically as the same location. This is so fascinating to keep in mind as we briefly cover the historical significance of this region. Shechem, or Sychar, is 1,800 feet elevation and is located in the beautiful fertile valley between Mount Ebal at 3,000 feet on the north, which is the highest mountain in Samaria, and Mount Gerizim at 2,890 feet to the southwest. It's also about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. If you want to pull up Google Maps, you can see what the current day map looks like. In fact, the current day uh, city of Shechem, which is where the well is actually located, is called Nablus. You can even type into Google Maps, type this exactly, Jacob's Well Greek Orthodox Church, to see where they built a church over the actual original well. Jacob's Well is very significant for Christians, Jews, and Muslims. It's really important to know that current day Samaria region is Palestine, specifically the West Bank. This is an important and interesting detail we will discuss more later. Another interesting point is that according to multiple sources, there are still a very small Samaritan population of around 800 people living near Nablus, and every year at Passover, they still do sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. Now that you have a better idea geographically the region we are discussing in this passage, let's talk about the significance of this region historically and culturally. Prior to studying this in great depth, I really had no idea of the significance historically of this area around Jacob's Well in Shechem. Jacob's Well. This is one of the few sites in Palestine about which there is no dispute. It was dug by Jacob and hence its name in the parcel of ground which he purchased from the sons of Hamor. In Genesis 33:19, the well is at the entrance to the valley between Mount Abel and Mount Gerizim, about two miles southeast of Shechem. It is also nine feet in diameter and about 75 feet deep now, though in ancient times it was no doubt much deeper, probably twice as deep. Can you imagine digging this well without modern-day tools? Brett covered the story back in Genesis. The first mention of Shechem is when Abram, later renamed Abraham, enters the land of Canaan, from Ur, across the Fertile Crescent, and down into Canaan, the Bible mentions Shechem as the first city to which Abram came in Genesis 12, 6, and 7. It states, Abram traveled the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh, which means teacher at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. God only appeared to Abraham three times in Scripture, and this was the first of these three. This was also the place of the first promise when God told Abram, To your offspring I will give this land. This is also the first of seven altars built by the patriarchs, and it was built here in Shechem. 
For the Jews and Muslims, the importance of Jacob's well is due to its ancient connection to the patriarch Jacob, the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. It states in Genesis 33, verses 17 through 20, Abraham's grandson Jacob also came to Shechem. Here, Jacob, renamed Israel, built an altar and named it El Elohe Israel, meaning God, the God of Israel. He was saying that the God of Israel is completely different from all the other false gods and is unique. Therefore, there is no one like him. He purchased a parcel of field and built a well there, known as Jacob's Well, which is the setting of our story today. Later, even Joseph was buried there, noted in Joshua 24:32. Years later, Jacob sent his teenage son Joseph from Hebron to check on his brothers as they kept the flocks in Shechem noted in Genesis 37, verses 12 through 14. Just a little north of there is where his brothers, filled with jealousy and hatred, sold Joseph to some Ishmaelites, traders, that were headed for Egypt along the trade route. After Moses brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, God commanded Israel to enter the Promised Land and go to Shechem to pronounce the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant on the nation, as noted in Deuteronomy 27, 4. Joshua did this, and dividing the nation, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them stood in front of Mount Abel, Joshua 8.33. From Mount Abel, they shouted the curses if they disobeyed the law, and from Mount Gerizim, they shouted the blessings if they obeyed. And there on Mount Abel, Joshua built an altar to God, and on a pillar of stones, he wrote a copy of the law. Then in 1 Kings, Jeroboam set up a sanctuary in Bethel, complete with a golden bull image, thus allowing the northern tribes a place to worship since Jerusalem lay in Judah. Ironically, this idolatrous sinner was just south of Shechem, where their forefathers and Joshua made the covenant to worship God alone. Then around 880 BC, the city of Samaria was founded by King Omri. Omri brought the hill of Shemer, which is Samaria, for two talents of silver and made this his capital, as noted in 1 Kings 16, 24 through 28. As the story continues, Ahab was married to the Jezebel, and they made Baal worship widespread in Israel. Around 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Samaria and hauled most of the Israelites into captivity. According to Assyrian records, new inhabitants were brought in from the east, forming a new population. This mixture of Israelites with imported Assyrians is thought to be the beginning of the Samaritan people. Assyrians repopulated the area with a mixed breed, partly Jewish, partly Assyrian. These people did not know the Lord, as noted in 2 Kings 17, 24-41, and thus they continually struggled with idolatry. Later in the 6th century BC, when the Jewish people returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, Because the Samaritan people were considered to be an impure breed of Judaism and outside religious customs, including worshiping pagan gods, they were not invited to participate in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans argued that they were descendants of Joseph through his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. They also believed the center of worship should remain at Shechem on Mount Gerizim, where it had been in the time of Joshua. This was a somewhat legitimate point if you recall the altar Joshua built mentioned earlier. So, after being labeled outsiders, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria around 330 B.C. The Jews, however, built their first temple at Jerusalem. The Samaritans furthered the rift by producing their own version of the first five books of Moses. It is very obvious to see why these two groups of people were so divided, and sadly, that division turned to extreme hate and created racial tension. Simply, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along ever since. In fact, even to this day, it's still not 
a peaceful place. By the time Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well near Shechem, the racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans was very well established. As you can see, this entire region has such a rich historical significance. You can see the incredible experiences Abraham, Jacob, and Joshua had in building altars to God there. And then you can see the demonic oppression with Jeroboam, Ahab, and Jezebel making altars to false gods. The clash of the extremes all in this tiny region. It isn't a huge surprise there is still such conflict in this region even today. Now that we have a better understanding of Samaria geographically, historically, and culturally, I want to share why it states in John 4 that now he, being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. The Greek word for had to literally means it was necessary. Why did Jesus have to do this? Why was it necessary for him? Well, as you learn more and more about the character of Jesus and attempt to learn the why behind his actions, it is very clear that he was consistent with his motive. You see, it is his nature to love, to heal the brokenhearted, to seek out the downcast, to heal the sick, to look beyond physical conveniences. We know from this text that he sat down because he was tired, but his ultimate purpose was the Samaritan woman. You see, the route he took to travel from Judea to Galilee wasn't popular. It wasn't easy, and it certainly wasn't safe. As we learned earlier about the tension between Jews and Samaritans, they didn't get along. Many pious Jews usually traveled around Samaria to avoid defilement, but Jesus wasn't worried about defilement. It was very common as a Jew to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem for all the major Jewish festivals. There were three common routes one could take between Galilee and Jerusalem. The first route, the central and shortest route, goes through Samaria. Although this route would have taken only three to four days by foot, many Jews chose to avoid it. They preferred longer routes that were historically much safer. The Jewish historian Josephus records a violent quarrel between some Galilean Jews and Samaritans while the Galileans were traveling through Samaria. Passing through this volatile region carried real risks. Route number two, the route east of Samaria, the eastern route crosses the Jordan River. It would have taken pilgrims five to seven days to traverse it. This route was safer and much more hospitable. The third major route is situated closer to the Mediterranean Sea. This western route also avoids Samaria, but this time in favor of the coastal plain. This was the longest route. So once again, back to our statement, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Let's read on. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone in town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The scripture states that Jesus sat down by the well. According to Kenneth E. Bailey in the book Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, he states that Roman Palestine wells had large capstones in the shape of huge donuts over them. The capstone on this particular well is 18 to 20 inches thick and about 5 feet across with a small hole in the center for lowering the bucket. An interesting point is that Middle Eastern wells don't have buckets attached to them. Each traveling group must have its own. Jesus most likely didn't have a bucket on him since he asked the Samaritan woman for a drink. It would have been culturally appropriate for Jesus, when he saw the woman, to actually withdraw to a distance of at least 20 feet. 
Jesus, as we know from the text, didn't move, and he remained sit- sitting on the well. And we also know from the text that the Samaritan woman came to the well. The first question Jesus asked the Samaritan woman was, will you give me a drink? Throughout the entire New Testament, Jesus only expressed the need for something to drink twice in recorded history. And on neither occasion did he actually get any water. In the book of John, we learn that Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink of water, but there's no record of her giving him any. On the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst, but he only received a taste of vinegar. Furthermore, Jesus requested permission not to drink once, and that was denied as well. In Matthew 26:39, it states, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Culturally and spiritually, Jesus was the one who held the power. He was a man, he was a Jew, he was a rabbi, and he was superior to this woman at the well in every single way possible. But with this one question, he acknowledges her value. This one question, Jesus actually breaks social taboo against talking to a woman, especially a woman with no other witnesses around them. This one question, Jesus completely threw out the long-standing hostility between Jews and Samaritans. This one question, Jesus showed humanity in needing a drink and seeking this woman to fulfill that need. He knew and she knew that any vessel of water she could give him would be considered defiled by the simple touch of the Samaritan. However, he didn't care. The Samaritan woman's first words in response to Jesus' question reveals a lot about her. She replied to Jesus' question asking for water. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This shows us that she was well aware of the social tension between Jews and Samaritans, as well as it had been against tradition for a man to speak to a woman. However, I believe this also tells a lot about her. She responded. She could have hidden. She could have ran. She could have ignored. But she chose to actually answer Jesus. I would assume she wasn't used to being seen, and she sensed something different about this man who wasn't afraid to speak to her. So what do we know about the Samaritan woman? Well, basically, her name is not revealed. However, this does not lessen her significance. An interesting historical fact is that on February 28th, the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic churches commemorate the Samaritan woman. She's known in the Eastern tradition as Fotini, the luminous one. Eastern Orthodox Christians remember her as a great martyr and refer to her as equal to the apostles. This is nowhere noted in the Bible, however, this is something the Orthodox Church recognizes as significance. Therefore, she has been named as a saint. What we know biblically is that she is a lady from the region of Samaria. We know she doesn't worship like the Jews, but worships based on the Samaritan faith, a mix of pagan traditions and the first five books of the New Testament. We know she has been married five times and now with another man. We don't know the details of these previous marriages. The previous husbands might have died, or possibly they left her, or she left them. We just don't know. The only clue to potentially explaining her reputation is the fact that she came to the well at noon, which wasn't standard. Water was usually drawn by the woman in the morning when it was cooler and required to start off the day. We also know from understanding cultural and historical traditions of this time that women typically drew water in groups in the morning, and it was often a social occasion. The fact that she was drawing water alone at midday, and not to also mention the hottest time of day, probably indicates she was a social outcast and wanted to avoid the other women's company altogether. We can also assume that she had a lot of pain from her past. 
Jesus' second statement to her didn't even address the obvious gender question, I'm a male and you're a female, and culturally this is not acceptable. Jesus went on to respond to her by saying, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. As a Samaritan woman, her only context of the gift of God would have been primarily from the first five books of God's word, not necessarily a person as described in Isaiah. She wouldn't have understood this because she most likely wasn't familiar with Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, or chapter 17, verse 13, where it refers to God as the spring of living water. So the Samaritan woman's response was, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? I love here how she makes it a point to say, I know the history of this land. I know this is where Jacob built the well and, it, and he gave it to us, not you Jews. It is clear here she doesn't understand who Jesus is exactly. Once again, Jesus doesn't allow her questions to distract him. He could have gotten into a debate on whose actual well it was and who can claim Jacob as an ancestor, but he didn't. He wasn't there to debate. He was there to reveal himself to her. He goes on to say, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Just like that, Jesus reveals to this woman that he is no ordinary man. He gets to the heart of this woman's pain, hurt, and disappointment. He looks beyond the differences between him and the Samaritan woman and sees her significance. The Samaritan woman goes on to say to Jesus, Sir, the woman says, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Once again, she tries to change the subject, but Jesus didn't engage in an argument about the history of the land and debate over where she should worship. Instead, he goes on to say, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. The Samaritan's woman understanding of Jesus progressed from his being a Jew to Sir to greater than her ancestor Jacob to a prophet and now Messiah. Jesus just revealed to a Samaritan woman one of the most important teachings. He revealed himself as the Messiah to this woman and what true worship is. Did you know that there are only two instances when Jesus comes right out and actually tells someone he is the Messiah? He said it once in Mark 14:62 to the high priest who was trying to kill him, and the only other time was to this woman, the Samaritan woman, who was trying to understand him. 
When Jesus talks about worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, Jesus is saying that worship will not be confined to a certain location or temple, which spoke, certainly spoke to the Samaritan woman, because here she was confined to worshiping only where the Samaritans worshiped. But Jesus is saying, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This is a very radical idea for this woman to hear, that she can worship anywhere, and this is the actual Messiah standing in the flesh before her. Jesus is telling her that he is a Messiah, and the old rules that the Samaritans and even the Jews live by are going to change. To worship in spirit is worship that originates from within, from the heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love for God and gratitude for all God is and has done. To worship in truth means it is rooted in the biblical word. Also, the phrase I am that appears here in the Greek is the actual phrase that is used in the Greek Old Testament to translate the Hebrew of what God said to Moses at the burning bush. There are other I am statements in the New Testament. Later, specifically in John, they include, I am the bread of life. I love it actually in John 6.35 where it states, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I love this because here we have at the Samaritan well, Jesus coming because he's thirsty. However, he didn't come for a drink. He came to reveal himself as the spring of living water that the Samaritan woman could drink and never be thirsty again. And here she found the Messiah. The second I am in John is I am the light of the world. I am. And then third, I am the door. Then I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true and living way, and I am the vine. After Jesus shares this amazing revelation that he is the Messiah, the disciples return, and as one can imagine, surprised to find him talking with a woman. But, you know, they don't ask any questions. The Samaritan woman says, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. You see, the Samaritan lady hurried away from the well, running back to town, and she actually left her water jar behind. She came to the well at the hottest time of the day for water, with a never-ending thirst that no earthly thing could fulfill. She leaves empty-handed, but heart full of the revelation of Jesus, the living water. She feels truly known by Jesus. This woman is the first Christian woman evangelist. If you read on in John 4, it goes on to say that, she, that he stayed for two days and many became believers. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of the words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man truly is the Savior of the world. Let's stop for a second and pause and relate this to our current day life. We see headlines of racial tensions. We see evil all around us taking place. People's lives torn apart because of disagreements, religion, abuse, drugs, anger, offense, bitterness, differences in the way we look, differences of opinions. We see people in such fear and anxiety, but all of this isn't out of Jesus' reach. Possibly you spent way too long living with the circumstances of life to define you versus inviting Jesus to come in and define your worth and value. Or possibly you feel trapped in a sinful situation or a sinful habit and you feel there is no way out. So every day you just keep doing what you've been doing and tolerate the situation. 
if you're listening to this and you are asking questions about your current circumstances in life and you can relate to the Samaritan woman, I would encourage you to seek out Jesus just as the Samaritan woman did. She wasn't afraid to ask him questions and Jesus wasn't at all afraid of her mess. He's not afraid of your mess either. No matter how small or how big, he will be waiting just like he was waiting for the Samaritan woman at the well in the midst of her daily life. He will be waiting there for you. And he can do that for us too. He can take the things that have hurt us, diminished us in our own eyes and in the eyes of others, and he can completely transform us. The closer we get to Jesus, the more clearly we hear him say, I know you and I love you. Even if he has to say, yes, that, that was sinful or yeah, that's quite a mess. But here's the thing. He's not going to leave us wallowing in our guilt and shame. He gives us the courage and the power to make right what we can make right and to forgive ourselves and to move on from what we cannot change. I promise you, just like you did for me and for many people I know, your life will never be the same, just as it is for the Samaritan woman. What she thought was just a trip to the well, just to draw water, became the most significant life-changing event in her entire life. And here Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah. And he can do that for you too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Uh, feel free to send us an email. Give us some feedback at message to kings at gmail.com. Um, it didn't Janelle do great? Just uh, yeah, send us any feedback, any questions you have. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.